Imagine if a museum was a place that acknowledged you as someone that is important, that your stories are important, who you are is important. I'm very much interested in how that's successful in certain kinds of spaces or between certain individuals. And what if the museum was much more of a personality that you came to want to spend time with, to eat with, to see with? I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. It's been a challenging few years for art museums, but Sandra Jackson Dumont, the director and CEO of the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art in Los Angeles, has never felt more energized about their potential. And that feeling is infectious. At the most recent American Alliance of Museums conference, Jackson Dumont opened her keynote speech with a love song by 70s soul singer Donny Hathaway. Then she asked the audience, don't you want people to see your institutions that way? For more than 20 years, Jackson Dumont has been a force in education and public programming, launching enormously popular initiatives at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Seattle Art Museum. She spent her career blurring distinctions between fine art and popular culture and creating alternative ways for the public to interact with art and museums. This mission has followed her to the Lucas Museum. Slated to open in 2025, the museum founded by George Lucas and Melody Hobson prioritizes art and audiences that have not always been taken seriously by the elite art world. It's clear Jackson Dumont has a long track record for breaking new ground. That's why we chose her as one of Artnet News's new innovators for 2022. The innovators list will be out in full later this month. Ahead of the release, Jackson Dumont spoke with Artnet News contributor Janelle Zara about how she is challenging the museum model as we know it. Hello, Sandra. Thank you so much for joining us on The Art Angle, and congratulations on your recent induction to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So let's just dive right into it. You're the director and CEO of the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. And so for anyone who's not familiar, we'll just set out the layout of the museum. Is The museum founders are husband and wife George Lucas and Melody Hobson, which some people might recognize those names from the Star Wars franchise. Can we talk about the genesis of their vision to create this museum? And what do we talk about when we talk about narrative art? Yeah. So George has been collecting art for four plus decades. He's always gravitated to art that tells stories. He believes very strongly in the power of visual storytelling to reflect and shape societies. And he wanted to create an institution dedicated specifically to narrative art, the art of storytelling. I think this is pretty powerful because together, George and Melody also share passion for collecting She's not only committed to this notion of storytelling, but she's also interested in the idea of what a museum could mean in society and how it can drive various opportunities for people from various backgrounds to kind of come together. Before they married in around 2013, they were both collecting, but her focus was on modern and contemporary works, much of which was by African-American artists. And since then, they've created works that sit at the intersection of their shared interest. Their personal collections are separate from the museum's collection. I think that's an important thing to share. And the museum, we as an institution, are acquiring works ourselves as an organization committed to narrative art. They continue to provide incredible support for us, financial and otherwise, not only for the building and for the overall development of the institution, but also for acquisitions. 
and our collection continues to grow on an ongoing basis. So the genesis of this collection and its premise is really, really rooted in this notion that stories and narratives actually shape who we are and they shape overall societies. Can you tell us what falls under the umbrella of narrative art and if you have some personal examples of your own highlights from the collection? The term narrative art has been used since at least the 1960s and can be characterized in many ways, but it actually can be seen through much of the world's artistic output over millennia, whether they be stories that were told and originated in religion, myths, legends, history, literature, or in contemporary events. Even in the high modernism period, the possibilities of visual storytelling have never stopped and they've molded artists in all media and it resonates across all cultures. I mean, I like to say what's interesting also, like Gerhard Richter, one of the most well-known abstractionists, also had a dance with the narrative impulse. And you can see some of the works even by those most well-known abstractionists. So this museum is the first institution to explore this function across cultures, time periods, and regions. But it's not the first to do that. It's the first to be an institution dedicated to that. And I like to say it's kind of akin to, let's say the Studio Museum was an, is an institution that's dedicated to Black artists, wherever they are, and their creative practice. MoMA was founded at a time when people were not looking to the U.S. It was all about Europe when it came to modernity. And there wasn't a place in the U.S. that really was dedicated to modern art. And so they went deep and broad to create an institution connected to that. When you look at ICP, the International Center for Photography, is an institution dedicated to a medium, photography, which was kind of considered the stepchild of the art world, you know, on so many levels. And then you look at a place like the Whitney that is like an American institution that at the time that they were developed, other places were not looking at America as a creative force that would challenge the canon of art history and have the American imprint on it. Certainly not artists of the 20th century, artists that were making at the time. So when I think about those institutions, and I can look to Europe as well and look at the Victoria and Albert Museum that is about design and it's about art history as well, and the connection between those two. There wasn't a museum dedicated to that at the time. And so we are an institution that's cutting a path in very much the same way those institutions were. So narrative art is artists from everyone, from Black Attic figure artists who were making incredible vases that illustrated the battles of love and loss to Kara Walker or Kara James Marshall, from Artemisia Gentileschi and cave paintings to the covers of publications that have shaped our existence. So narrative art is the artwork that actually does work to shape how we see each other, how we see the world, for better or for worse, I should say. One of your headlining acquisitions that we wanted to ask you about is recent purchase of a Robert Colescott 1975 painting, George Washington Carver Crossing the Delaware, page from an American history textbook. So for anyone who doesn't know, this is Colescott's take on Emanuel Leutz's 1851 painting, Washington Crossing the Delaware, where the original figures have been replaced with Black figures, including George Washington Carver, Aunt Jemima, and Uncle Ben. This acquisition made headlines in 2021 after a reported seven-minute bidding war at Sotheby's, and ultimately the museum won for $15.3 million, which set a new record for an artist whose work has been historically undervalued. 
So what we want to ask is why it was important for this work to be part of the collection. And as you've been building out this collection, what kinds of conversations did you have with George and Melody leading up to this purchase? Well, a couple of things. One, we're an institution dedicated to narrative art. This is an essential work for our collection. We believe that art has the ability to shape society. Then Cole Scott's direct reference to Emmanuel Lloyd's iconic 1851 Washington Cross of Delaware presents just a radical and important alternative telling of a patriotic visual narrative and mythology that has for so long grounded our national identity. You can't study American history and not see that work in your textbook. And it presents a particular kind of image. This work is one that cuts across time and place. It's both contemporary and historical. It merges popular culture and art history. For example, Uncle Ben is an iconic character from our social history, but it's also an iconic historical figure in the landscape of American history and popular culture. I think also there is this real kind of interest in understanding how this was an artist who studied art history, Bob Colescott, and who commented on it through his own personal experience, but also commented on it with the interest in really thinking differently about what the canon of art history could be for people of color. I'm thrilled to say that this work will be on view at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the American Wing, not far from where the Floyd'sa painting is. And so please, please, please know that you can for the first time in history, had these two works in conversation about the representation of various narratives in the American landscape. But we also acquired other narrative works that cut across all kinds of things. I mean, we have fantastic works by everyone from Norman Rockwell to Frida Kahlo to Yinka Shanabare to Judy Baca. Talk about a great narrative landscape. But we also have in our collection Jacob Lawrence's Underground Railroad, Charles White's The Picketers, Kadir Nelson's recent flight of the Clotilla that was featured on the cover of The New Yorker with lots of lots of attention. So the Cole Scott work shows how a visual artist can change a story with complex emotions and narrative that will continue to be relevant across time. I'd like to say that we can actually teach a different kind of American history by putting these two works together. And then you asked about Melody and George and their input leading up to the acquisition of this work. And they're very supportive of our acquisitions. We are constantly in conversation and they value a nuanced presentation of what narrativity is. And I think they really are excited about us being an institution that not only presents ideas, but we are at the site for discourse and dialogue about comfortable and uncomfortable issues. Definitely. I've also heard that it was a long time wish of yours to exhibit these two paintings together. Is that true? I've always wanted this, but I think also walking through the halls of the Met, working there, it's exciting to see this come to fruition. I mean, longtime mentors of mine, like Lowry Stokes Sims, who is the person who has done such significant research and writing on Cole Scott's work, is someone that also I respect and adore, and she also worked at the Met. So to have that happen during her lifetime and also during my time feels like it's a great opportunity for us to also look at the canon of art history differently. I keep saying that because it's such an important part of contributing to 
a more reflective and nuanced approach to art history and to history than the one that also has historically been presented. You've been working in museums and a lot of very important museums for a very long time. Love to hear what like younger Sandra would think or how she would react to hearing this news. I think younger Sandra probably wouldn't have known a lot of this because my relationship to museums wasn't one that I have now. Think if I could have born in the future and I know what I know now about the education system and about education overall, I think that learning will look different. And I think that young people and educators will embrace museums as central learning mm-hmm. labs. And I think that a younger Sandra would be like, wow, what do these have to do with each other? Which one is the truth? Mm-hmm. What is truth? Who determines truth? Who are these people? Why would they ever be depicted this way in Mm -hmm. both paintings? Mm -hmm. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? So I think younger Sandra would be thinking about that. When you mentioned younger Sandra didn't have the relationship Mm -hmm. with museums that you have now, do you mean in terms of experience or like, is there certain wisdom that you know now that you're referring to? All of the above. I mean, I didn't have a social relationship to museums when I was a child. And I think that's due to a whole host of things. Lots of people don't often have access to Broadway. They have access to it, but is it a social space? Or is it a space that you go to because it's an assignment for school? A lot of what we're trying to accomplish, and I feel like what I've been invested in in my career, is really about making these places of social learning and social engagement that are just like interesting places to have fascinating experiences that lead to life-changing moments. Going to a performance in a museum is very different than going to a performance somewhere else. Participating in a conversation with a living artist in a museum is very different than participating in a lecture or something like that somewhere else. I think we learn by doing in many cases, and I think museums propose very active places for that to happen. But as a child, I didn't go to museums for social engagement. I went the way that I was learning in school was you go to a museum, they hand you a piece of paper. I would divide and conquer with my friends what we would accomplish, and we sit in a corner and finish it up. You know, and then we go and find our favorite whatever. Or we'd sit and talk more about the things we wanted to talk about. What we're building our institutions now, I mean, museums across the world are doing this. We're building institutions that feel so much more a part of the fabric of your everyday reality. It's not a distant arm's length proposition. It's something that is in the world and of the world. If we do it right, that's what it'll feel like. And I'm super excited about that. Like, I'm seeing young people go on dates like, I walk up to young people in museums, and I'm like, hey, are you guys here for school? They're like, no, we're on a date. Oh, we're here for fun. <laughs> no one made us come here. No, it's amazing. And it's kind of almost like if you think about social media, like, what does it mean to be liked? Someone hearts you. We want people to choose museums, choose the experience, not feel like someone convinced them that this is important. And I'm loving that we're building an institution that really is centered on that. Yeah. That is bound up with people's interests. And it's our job to figure out where the intersection is between these important historic works or these important contemporary works and what people can glean from them. The privilege we have 
is that we get to sit at the intersection of people's everyday lives and what matters to them and these works of art that can contribute to shaping their everyday lives and vice versa. So I want us to be a museum that people walk up to and it's like, you know, I don't know what's going on there, but I'm sure today something interesting is happening. What you're describing is like, that's a lot of trust that you'll go there and you'll find something for you. Yeah. And I think that's a feeling that people really don't have when they go to museums, historically anyway. Yeah. I was thinking like some of it is even about who am I going to meet at the museum today? What fly individual is going to be there? What interesting person? Or I went to the museum and imagine such and such was in the galleries. And can you believe it? Wow. You know, it's that kind of thing that I think it should feel like some of those places here in Los Angeles, people end up at boardwalks or they go for hikes or whatever. When I lived in Seattle, I would go for these like long walks and stuff like that. And so much of it was about taking in nature and getting your own health and welfare jolt or peace of mind or whatever. But the aftermath was, oh, I ran into such and such on the trail today, or I saw such and such at this thing, or I witnessed this thing happen. What if we could create the space where those things happen and people start to feel like they want to depend on that, like that we become the dependable page for that kind of interesting thing to happen. And some of those might be quiet moments. Some of them might be big moments. I'm interested in that. Does that sound interesting to you? I mean, I... I... (laughs) What you're describing is like, let's transform the museum so it's the town square. Yeah, Like it's a site for social interaction. Let's see other people. And I think historically, the way that I think about museums is you go to this place and this history is being presented to you. But what you're describing is that young people can go there and like feel like they interacted with something or like with other people. And this was an active site instead of a passive site. It exists and it's dynamic because I participated. It's interesting because I just presented in Venice at the loophole of retreat and I talked about the archive of our minds, the memories as archives, and that museums are archives. And the more we create this tethering between who we are and what these places are and what the things are, they do become town squares. We talk about the middle of the museum here at the Lucas Museum as the canopy like this place that people can gather under, the museum becomes this not safe space, but a safer space. You know, I don't believe in safe spaces. I wish I would love to believe in safe space. I just haven't run into one yet. But I believe in safer spaces where, you know, the conditions are such that you feel safer to participate in the more rounded version of yourself and that the experiences kind of just feel magnetic It's a place where you're not coming to see just things, but you're coming to see and be seen in many ways. Like, imagine if a museum was a place that acknowledged you as someone that is important, that your stories are important, who you are is important. I'm very much interested in how that's successful in certain kinds of spaces or between certain individuals. And what if the museum was much more of a personality that you came to want to spend time with? to eat with, to be with, you know? (laughs) That sounds beautiful. I mean, that leads me to my next question. The fact that you were working at the Met before you came here. I love the Met. I think the Met is such like a wondrous universe to get lost in. But at the same time, there's many ways that it's kind of the opposite of what you're describing. Like it's so rooted in history. This is a building that's like almost 150 years old or an institution. And so much structure is rooted in precedent that is 
a different time and place, a different set of values, whether it's how staff is going to be organized, what counts as art, who is an artist, what are these categories. So I kind of want to ask you, when you were offered this job, what kind of opportunities it represented to you being something so new in a lot of ways that actually challenged these ideas? Well, I feel like that's the function of my role anywhere Mm -hmm. I work, to really think about how to make places, no matter what they are, usable and dialogic and engaged. So these structures that exist, I think we're all learning. And contrary to what a lot of people believe, the Met is, it's a breathing vessel. It is a thing that evolves and transforms and tries to bump against itself. And in doing that, though, it's also bumping against the 150 years that existed. So I came here and I naively thought, um, believe it or not, Janelle, (laughs) I was like, oh, you know, I don't have to retrofit anything. First of all, there were two other directors here before I came. So I'm not the first director of the Lucas Museum. The reason why I say I was naive in many ways is because we're not detached as the Lucas Museum from the history of art and from the history of museums. And so while there is this major and an amazing opportunity for us to really think differently about how museums work and function and what they mean in the world, I think that we're doing that in the context of people actually knowing what a museum is people having preconceived notions about the purpose of museums, not even preconceived notions, they're just notions about institutions and what they are. And so we're working against this longstanding history of the role that museums have played in society or what has been known as the role of museums in society, which has historically been presented as a prescription of exactly what you said earlier, which is you come here for me to deposit something in you and you leave with that information. And in our case, it is along the lines of what most museums are trying to do, which is actually create a discourse, a relationship. And the Met is trying to do that as well. But I came to the Met from the Seattle Art Museum and from the Seattle Art Museum, from the Studio Museum, from the Studio Museum, from the Whitney Museum. So I've got all these different ways of looking coupled with my own life experiences. And so these staffing structures and these organizational hierarchies, I think there are some that really work well. I think sometimes it's been the people in them that hasn't lent it to its greatest success. I think in other cases, this is such an opportunity for us to go against the grain of the stereotype of who gets to sit in these seats. Who are the actors that shape these institutions? What can we do and what's impossible or what people perceive as impossible, which we see as promise here. So it's not a clean slate. It's never a clean slate. I like to think, you know, at the Studio Museum, the work we were doing there, at El Museo, the work they've done there, or the Wing Luke Museum in Seattle, like all these places have said they want to be museums. Museums are a very specific thing. It's a place that is decidedly saying that we value these things. We think this is important to be cared for over time for future generations. That's one of the central premises. And I think that the thought is that a lot of people don't understand or people that aren't the quote unquote traditional museum goers don't understand the importance of museums. And I would argue that people do understand. Generally speaking, most people understand museums. Oh, that's so important. That should go in a museum. 
I have this family heirloom or this belonged to my great, great, great grandmother. It should be in a museum. It's actually a common statement. So that tells me that people really understand it. So like when we're talking about forming a museum in 2023 or 2025 even, what are some precedents that we can let go of and then precedents that we need to keep in order to preserve that sense of like, this is an important place. We go here because these are important objects, but also to bring in this idea like, we're going to go and have fun. I'm excited to go somewhere that you'd want to bring a date to. How do you create that atmosphere with all of the precedent we have of what a museum is supposed to be? I love that question, by the way. Because it actually speaks to a sense of, to be crude about it, target audiences. It means that I have to pay enough attention to understand what you find interesting and compelling. (laughs) And I need to incorporate that into our daily existence. I spend lots of time talking with people about, they can't believe that I work in a museum. And they're just like, so what do you do? They find it so compelling. So what do you do? What did you study? Why? What? And I'm like, come and spend the day with me. And then it becomes like, how did I not know this? How did I not know that I can actually walk through the galleries in this way? And I'm like, don't approach these galleries like you're a tourist and you're coming to check off. I saw this. I saw that. I saw this. But approach it like it's a today I'm feeling this. I'm thinking about this. And you can walk up to the person at the front desk of almost any museum and say, I like bicycles, or I've been thinking about these issues. Do you know where I could find similar works in the collection? Or I told people to figure out a soundtrack and then walk through the galleries with the soundtrack. I think that there's opportunity in our world for museums to really, really, really play a more central role in the social and the intellectual lives of people. The best dinner parties, best conversations, the best best church events, any of that stuff that I've gone to in my life, concerts, whatever, are all centered on this notion of you had to be there on that day, at that time. And if you weren't there, you missed out. So museums kind of have to create this fear of missing out kind of situation where People are excited about it. They feel like things are time-based. It's not, I can go see the snuff jar any day, but it's like, I know that the snuff jar is there. I can go see it anytime I want to. But on Tuesday, the 13th of November, um, Janelle is going to be giving a talk about her parents and how they collected snuff jars and she didn't even know it, but only through the legacy of blah, blah, blah. And then people who know Janelle are going to show up and then those people are going to tell somebody else and then their minds will be transformed and their excitement will be centered on not only the object, not only the people, the, the museum in that moment, but also about the people that were there. We used to do something at the Met called Meet Your Match. And we started it on a Valentine's Day. Then we just started doing it all the time. But basically, you come into the Great Hall and they hand you a piece of paper and you answer this question. Do you like this or this? And then based on what you picked, then it led you to another question. Then it led you to another question. And it led you to the work of art that was your personality match. Then you learned where that work of art was. You go to the work of art. 
And there are other people that are the same, a similar personality as you there. And you're like, did you answer the same questions? And you start talking to strangers in ways that you probably wouldn't otherwise. So doing lots of things like that, I think, are really incredible. Looking at works of art with elders who have a different understanding based on when they grow up of a work of art, of an experience in a museum. Looking at the architecture of a building, not even looking at a work of art, just like looking at the place itself. I wanted to ask you about your personal history with art. I know that you've been studying art history since undergrad and into graduate school and many museums that you've worked at. When you were talking for me personally, I was thinking about my own parents' relationships with museums. Like, I don't know if my father has ever been to a museum in his life. And I know that my mother has because I brought her to one and it was James Terrell at LACMA, which seemed perfect for her. It's just an art form that so clearly has a physical presence and has like a visual presence. And it was something that really engaged her. She read every single wall text, which surprised me. So what I want to ask for you is if you could go into undergraduate and know that you wanted to study art history, did you have a strong personal home background in art that kind of set you up on this path? Oh, no, not at all. I studied biology initially. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when I went to undergrad, I studied biology because I was decent at the sciences. And more than that, I thought that in order to help people, I wanted to give back, contribute to my quote unquote community, be a credit to the people who had invested so much in me. And I thought that it was more about doing that and also being kind of an upright citizen, if you will. I grew up in San Francisco in the Fillmore, and I'm the first-generation college student. My mother's from rural Mississippi. And so for me, it was less about doing totally what fed my soul or anything like that, but doing something that allowed me to contribute to society. And for me at the time, that was biology. I really wanted to go to medical school and be a doctor. So I spent my first four years of undergrad studying biology. And I say first four years because it wasn't until my senior year that I changed my major to art history. I had taken an art history course as a part of like general ed requirements and it kind of stayed with me. But more than anything, I saw a movie. I don't know if you've heard of the movie Boomerang. Eddie Murphy and Halle Berry are in it. And they work at a design firm in New York City. And I think she had studied art history So I thought, oh, maybe I want to be a graphic designer because she was stylish. She was smart. She was charming. And of course, she's fine, you know. So um, but she also was volunteering in Harlem at the time, teaching art classes to kids. And I just found that to be really interesting and more aligned with my understanding of how I wanted to be in the world as a aesthetic person, I would say. But then I saw a special on what was public television in San Francisco And it was about the Studio Museum in Harlem, of all places. And it talked about this incredible museum that existed in Harlem dedicated to Black art and Black people. And I'd grown up in San Francisco in theater and dance in a Black neighborhood. And it was community theater. And so it was like a pride of who you were. But I'd never really grown up going to museums in that way. So I didn't have this direct path. Thelma Golden always talks about, she always knew she wanted to be a curator. And I'm just like, girl, I never was that person. So I kind of ended up in this space because I got to a place where I realized that I really thought that the key to any self-awareness and any 
self-realization was in your ability to think critically for yourself. And so I found that art was this place where people were able to not only think critically about themselves, but it was also the place where historically a Flemish painter or contemporary artist, you were putting your imprint into the world that would help cement over time a view of the world, (laughs) a positionality. And so that was really important for me. It's funny that you mentioned that your parents, you don't know if your dad has ever been and you know that your mom went because you took her. I had the same Mm -hmm. experience. Yeah, I think it's a very common experience. And I think it's also very telling that your kind of first notion of art history or like studying it came from watching a movie where Halle Berry depicted this person. There is not a lot of other ways to even see what this lifestyle would be. Or, you know, there's not a lot of ways where that would have intersected with my life or your life if this particular actress had not depicted this particular kind of role. You know, I think it's just something that a lot of people are not aware with or like do not have access to. No, but you see a lot more of it now. I mean, popular music right now and athletes... They're talking about art all the time. They're collecting it. Yeah, it's cool now. It's very cool. Like you go to an art fair and you're just like, wow. And I see the same thing in museums. So this idea that they're irrelevant is just kind of ridiculous. I mean, when you have Jay-Z and Beyonce doing a video installation at the Louvre, then the world is very different. We just also need to create the spaces for people to have an understanding of what it means professionally to be in these spaces, not just as an event. So while I talked a lot about the social makeup of museums, I also think it's imperative for us to talk about the professional makeup of museums and how we want to have people in these spaces in ways that they see themselves being able to contribute from that point of view as well. The YouTube video that made me excited to talk to you is your keynote speech at the American Alliance of Museums conference. That was very interesting. I really have to behave differently in some of these spaces. Like, <laughs> Oh, I love it. For any listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, you opened it with a moment to vibe to this Donny Hathaway song before you kind of jumped into your speech. That's when I knew that this would be a really great conversation. But you said something really important also during that speech, which was that right now museums are experiencing an ethical, social, and cultural seismic shift. I want to talk about what you meant by that. Can you give us a few examples and the obstacles for museums to kind of overcome these and also the opportunities they present. We've talked a lot about this throughout the conversation, but just to kind of hone it in. When I think about ethical, social, and seismic shift, I think about what is the reason to exist and for whom? It's almost like the values proposition for society. If you only see yourselves as the custodians of these things so that they're just taken care of, then I propose that we should be places that are not only taking care of these things, but we are tethering these things to people and certainly the people from the cultures that made them. That's one piece of it. So it's a question of relevance and a question of what's your purpose. And so I think that museums are really in the place now where they realize that the world has changed around them. And so they have to meet the moment. And meeting the moment means that you have to come to terms with that. You can't just be for a tiny, small subset of people. You can't behave in a certain way only. And you have to be comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations 
And you have to prepare people to not just talk about art, but talk about the world. And so that means that you actually have to be thinking about the world and you have to be in and of the world. You have to begin to think about how there's space for us to talk about this moment and what's happening. But I think these isolationist approaches to museums, those days are gone. You know, that they're just repositories and places that you go to be told about these things. But I think the seismic shift relates to a desire on behalf of cultural workers to make meaning that goes beyond uh, wall text. If you could change one thing about the art world, what would it be? I would change the canon of art history to be more reflective and true to what is real. Are there any artists that you're most excited about right now? I'm really excited about Sarah Leibais. She's like this amazing artist from the Dominican Republic. I've always loved her work. It's very imaginative. It's mythological. It's drawing upon science fiction and the histories of the African diaspora. It's tied to folk tales. So it feels loving and seductive and beautiful and warm, but it also reflects themes of Black resistance. It's about these underworlds. It is gorgeous and extremely well done work. And on top of all of that, she is a beautiful person and extremely clear and articulate about her practice, who she is, what her intentions are. So I'm super excited about Fairlight Baez. It was such a pleasure speaking with you, Sandra. It was a lot of fun. I'm really excited for this museum to open and all that you have planned. So thank you so much for joining us at The Art Angle. Well, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. Take care. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening. See you next week.